Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone except those perpetuating the quote-unquote African gang violence story. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fantastic opener. <laughs> wow. Let's jump right in. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, should we start with that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where to go from there. Well, um, Channel 7 mm. was trying to air that story about quote-unquote African gang violence because um, they seem to have run out of stories to talk mm. about. Yep. And that always gets the viewers. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, well, interesting, but um, a news poll just showed a couple of days before that that um, more Victorians are concerned about um, safety and policing and all of that sort of thing than anything else in this upcoming election. So I think that they probably um, made a calculated decision. I'm sure that they had heaps of that lying around already. Mm. Um, it's just for the clicks and to perpetuate mm. hysteria. Yeah, it was awful. Also, we should probably tell people what this show is. Yes. <laughs> You're listening to Tuesday <laughs> Breakfast, in case you hadn't already cleaned that. It is 7.02 a.m. It's Tuesday, the 10th of July, and it is NADOC Week, National NADOC Week. Yay! Week two, if you live in Nam or anywhere in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, so George and I have been doing some NADOC Week-related things. Mm-hmm. On Friday, we went to Nocturnal at yes. the Melbourne Museum. Yeah, it was a really mm. great event. Hey, there was um, Mojo Juju and... Summer Plum mm, and, and Kate. Yes. Oh mm. my goodness! Big favorite of ours. Oh. She is just the best stage presence, mm. and she's only nineteen or yeah. something like that. What? And How she, can you like? It, you oh. have to be so confident and just brilliant to be able to stand up there and hold that space mm. as such a young person and just be incredible. Yeah, and mm. she made it feel. You know, she was so warm and. It's the museum. It's all, you know, steel and concrete and shiny floors. Mm-hmm. And it was this big open space. But she made it feel so intimate and warm and almost like you were in a jazz club or something. Mm-hmm. Like everybody mm-hmm. moved in and in and in and in. And yeah, oh, she was fantastic. Yeah. And then Mojo Juju, I, the last mm-hmm. song that, she, oh. that they played yeah. um, was incredible. And I've been trying to find it everywhere. And I don't think it's out yet because um, mm. there's an album being released in August. Oh, mm. well, we have to play it on the show because yep. it, I had goosebumps. Yeah, it yeah. was just captivating. Yeah, their voice is phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, and the exhibition at the museum yes. that was very... Um, if if anybody hasn't been yet to the, to the NADOC exhibition at the Melbourne Museum, go. But because of her, we can... Um, mm. It was beautiful. Yeah, they had photos and little sort of spiels about all of these really significant Indigenous women in history mm. and their contributions. And the, there'd be one that like started um, the first Aboriginal women's refuge, one that was a musician, that, like 
won people involved with like health and mm. just doing the most amazing things. Mm. And yeah. it just it was quite emotional, hey, just to see them. It one was after so the other, emotional. Everything that they'd done. Yeah, and um, and that that thread of of colonization and oppression throughout. You know, so many of them started life taken from their homes as a domestic worker and all of that sort of thing and um mm. and just to see what they achieved and how important they are mm. to Australian society and obviously to their own families as well because that was the other nice thing there was so many family stories in that other yes. part of the exhibition yeah. um yeah it was really quite quite incredible very moving mm. Mm. should so we go into some headlines we should all right so the banking royal commission has revealed that dodgy insurance tactics were used on indigenous people the Guardian has reported that over the last week, the Commission heard from Indigenous Australians who were routinely targeted with sales pitches for valueless insurance, sold faulty cars and usurious interest rates, and wrongly charged thousands of dollars in illegal fees. Additionally, they were pressured into taking out life and funeral insurance, even if already covered, or taking out expensive funeral insurance for babies and children. Chief, Chief Executive of Let's Insure, Russell Hoden, who appeared before the Commission, claims that his company never ever sanctioned aggressive sales tactics. However, he acknowledged that staff were trained to push insurance on people even if they were already covered. Another company, the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, allegedly falsely represented itself as an Indigenous company using images of a rainbow serpent and Aboriginal families and art on its materials. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of things are coming to light through this Mm. Royal Commission. Um, David Davis, British Brexit Secretary, resigned over the weekend. Following his resignation, junior ministers in the Brexit department have also quit. And we just found out very early this morning that Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has also resigned um, in a letter um, where he said that the UK is headed for the state of a colony. Wow. Boris mm. Johnson. Mm. Bye. So Davis's quit um, comes just days after the government had agreed on a plan regarding ties with the, with the EU after the UK leaves next year. Maine Davis did not see eye to eye on Brexit policy, with Davis believing that the direction of the policy will leave the UK in a weak negotiating position. There are only nine months remaining before Britain leaves the bloc in late March 2019. What will happen? Literally, who knows? That's the point. <laughs> I was like, looking at me, bewildered. <laughs> I just like, what is the point of a soft Brexit if you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way to be. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was very much like anti-Brexit, but way to be hypocritical. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be the critique of both Johnson mm. and Davis. Yeah. That they're still kind of holding on, but not with much sort of power. So yeah. It's kind of like a very yeah. Yeah. Who knew that racism might be bad for the economy? <laughs> <laughs> Um, All right. The U.S. has come out in opposition of a breastfeeding resolution at the United Nations affiliated World Health Assembly in Geneva, as reported by The New York Times. The resolution is based on decades of research. It concludes that breast milk is the healthiest option for children. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) And encourages countries to address inaccurate or misleading marketing on breast milk substitutes. The U.S. has attempted to halt the deliberations on this resolution in support of infant formula manufacturers, using threats, according to diplomats and government officials, that if countries such as Ecuador refused to drop the resolution, they would unleash punishing trade measures and withdraw crucial military aid. 
Most countries, many of them poorer nations, have since backed off. However, Russia stepped in to introduce the measure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Saving the day. Yeah, he is, he's basically the Minister for Women, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, there were also fears during the deliberations that the U.S. would cut funding to the World Health Organization, which provides uh, the U.S. provides 15% of its budget. The $70 billion baby food industry is largely dominated by American and European companies. This is the latest example of the Trump administration pushing corporate interests on public health and environmental issues. Uh, another example is renegotiating NAFTA to limit warning labels on junk food and sugary beverages and attempting mm-hmm. to restrict the WHO's effort to provide life-saving medicines to poor countries. And lastly, Mexico's, Mexico's new president, sorry, AMLO, will sign the San Andreas Agreement with the Zapatistas, which was started in 1996 but never implemented. The overall plan is aimed at respecting the rights of indigenous people of Mexico and increasing their participation in public policies. This includes developing a regional development plan, creating a new organism to address indigenous issues, transversal compliance of rights and new constitutional reform. This is a landmark moment, especially considering the Zapatistas have declared that they do not support AMLO. So it mm. would be very interesting to see mm. how that's rolled out and the impact it has. I really can't wait. Can you please keep us updated on that? Yes. Thank you. We'll do. Right. Mm. I am a bit exhausted after that news, Georgie. <laughs> should we play a song? I think we must. What should we listen to? Um, well... Did you have some special NADOC Week tunes lined up? I do. I would really love to play Mojo Juju's uh, single, and this is going to be on the album that will come out in very early August. Mm-hmm. This song is called Native Tongue. If you get a chance, check out the, the video clip. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's like they're in a field and Mojo's got this big fur coat on and there's three male Indigenous dancers dancing around. And it's like, it's just so artistic and yeah. Awesome. Really cool. Right. Let's hear it. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AIMS Australia is a leading education provider offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. AIMS Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. AIMS Australia is a 3CR supporter. 
we're back at 3CR. I recognise that little voice. Ames, <laughs> <laughs> Australia announcement. They forced me. No, it was fun. It was good. It was my first. <laughs> <laughs> You've just defamed 3CR and Ames. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, no, it was it was good. It was good. It's just funny when you have to do something like that and you need to speak really clearly mm. and seem really, really excited even when you're saying numbers. Yeah. But apparently it works. <laughs> I think it sounded great. <laughs> so before that, we heard a track, a new track by Mojo Juju called Native Tongue. Mm, great song. And what's up next? So we thought... Um, in the spirit of NADOC week, um, and given that this is Tuesday Brecky, um, and that this year's NADOC theme is a pretty feminist one, we would hear from Celeste Little, who is the National Indigenous Officer for the NTEU, um, is also an incredible writer and activist, um, and strong, strong feminist woman. Um, and so this is a speech, or just she was part of a panel um, at the... Young Socialist Alliance's Radical Ideas Conference um, a couple of years ago. I think this is 2016. It's just um, a bit of a clip from YouTube, and I'm just going to play part of it because she talks for quite a while, and it's all awesome, but we don't have time to hear all of it. So Yes. um, I'll just hit play, and it's going to start sort of mid-sentence, so it's a little jarring. Apologies (laughs) to you all. So talking and getting stuff together has been a bit difficult, so I apologise for that. But I think that... um the various sorts of stuff, it's, it's really interesting to hear Kamala's um, discussion about the struggle for abortion rights um, and how that's still going on in the country. One of the biggest, um, biggest early arguments between Aboriginal feminists and white and mainstream feminists was over abortion rights as a central um, key issue, or reproductive rights. Um, and that... That um, fight boiled down to something really, really simple, which was why why non-Indigenous women were struggling to get abortion, to not be criminalised for that abortion, to not be exposed to incredibly dangerous backyard practices. Aboriginal women had no trouble accessing abortions. In fact, you know, they could quite easily get them on the missions or they were having their children taken away from them. Um, and the right to the right to reproduce was 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 our critical issue. And fast forward to right now, we've got Aboriginal children being removed at higher rates than they have ever been before. So the parallels and the fact that we're still fighting these same sort of fights this many years down the track is just yeah. I don't think that the four the four mothers and the allies and all of that would have. Well, they probably would have hoped that we'd be over this shit by now, but we're not. We're not. Um, the sorts of things that I was putting down, I, I, um, a lot of the work that I did um, in the last couple of years or so, some of the work that sort of got some, got some traction, got some notoriety was... Um, off the back of the, the counting dead women count that people like Destroy the Joint were doing or, or um, man, man Kills Woman, which um, Real for Women were doing, I started my own list, which was Counting Dead Aboriginal Women, and I ran that off my blog for two years. Um, there's only one reason why I haven't done a 2017 version of that, and, well... No, let me try again. There's two reasons. The first reason is that 
it's been a busy year, it's been a tough year, you know, getting together that data, going through those sorts of stories is, um, is, is difficult enough and pulling out those data sets is, yeah, it's a lot of work and it's work that um, when I decided to take a slight step back this year I didn't feel up to doing. The other part is the sheer level of trauma that is actually attached to going through those lists. And um, for both 2015 and 2016, when going through the Counting Dead Aboriginal Women um, lists, and I would have some arguments with why is it important to highlight, you know, we're counting all women, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. There wasn't a lot of intersectionality within those lists. So as well as Aboriginal women statistics coming up, we weren't seeing the statistics of trans women or disabled women or all of that being highlighted. So the count was supposed to be a coverall. Yet when I was drawing out those numbers, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women were making up around 20% of the recorded numbers within the counting dead women list. For a percent, I mean, for a, for a population that makes up, say, 3% of women in this country, that's about enough as it is. We're talking six to seven times the population parity rate. Um, on top of that, um, a lot of a lot of the people, a lot of the women that I, were, I was identifying through going through these lists um, was down to my own community knowledge. It wasn't stuff that was highlighted actively in the press and or within the police reports. And what would happen was that I would trawl through, I would find the the police reports or the um, press reports where they had where I knew that there were populations, high populations of Aboriginal people. I'd then run that past community members or I'd do some sort of liaison work to make sure that I I was correct on on my hunch, which is a horrible word to be talking about in this sort of context, but was correct on my hunch in order to identify these women. And then I'd post them up on my blog. And every single time I was correct um, was, was, like, was, was like having the heart broken. It was, just, it was just really, really hard to do. But on top of that, um, there was no follow-through. In something like 90% of these recorded ones, um, there was absolutely no follow-through from the media. So we get some sort of report about an Aboriginal woman has died. Oh, no, no, let me try again. A woman has died in this specific area that's highly populated by Aboriginal women. There'd be no name, no, um, no follow-up reports about the nature of the cases that were coming out of it. There'd be no usually no records of arrest or anything that were reported to the media. It would just sit as one autonomous woman has died, that's it. And um, the fact that, the fact that, I don't know, that the, I, I, I hear things like, oh, well, we can't say, we, we can't talk about these women because it's culturally insensitive to say their names after death or... You know, some sort of excuse that someone would give me, and I'm, you know, Aboriginal communities have long found a way to actually speak about people who have passed away. Um, you know, if it's not using courtesy titles or exchange names or 
or spirit names or whatever else. There is always some way to talk about that person. And the fact that these were the sorts of excuses I would be hit with about not identifying people or not following through or not writing more about the cases, yeah. It, it was draining. So getting together the energy to go through and shawl through 2017, which I think is um, already currently sitting at 74 or 75 women that have been recorded. So I don't know what week we're up to, but we're, what, 1.7 women per week that would probably equate to. Um, going through that data and starting to break it down and look at who who is Indigenous within that data set. Um, it's taken me about until now to have the energy to do that. And so that was Celeste Little, um, the National Indigenous Officer for the NTEU, um, talking about something that I, um, I think is, is hard to hear but is really important um, in, especially in NAIDOC Week, but you know, all the time in Australia, um, that a person who is not getting paid for that work, mm. um, and who is not having the support of the government or the media or the help or the follow through from anybody else is putting herself through that, um, just to bring some semblance of justice or bring these deaths to light. I think, um, I think we all need to think about, um, and, and think about what needs to change there. Um, and if that, if that segment raised anything for you, um, there's a few numbers that you can call. Um, you can ring WIRE, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange, on 1300 134 130, um, or you can call JIRA, which is um, formerly the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention Legal Service, on 1800 015 188. That's 1-800-015-188. And so now I thought we would play a song, um, a new song which I'm really enjoying, by a woman named Moriel Spearham, who um, is an Indigenous woman living in, I think she's living in New South Wales, but I'm going to have to double-check that. Uh, This is her new track called Black Woman. Love that song. That's Moriel Spearham with her new track, Black Woman. And uh, now, what are we hearing, George? So, a couple of weeks ago, I think we might have played a section of this podcast. It's called Away, and it's an Indigenous arts and culture podcast that is uh, shared both nationally and internationally. And this particular episode... Sorry, it's um, it's in the th- for the theme of because of her we can, and it is. Uh, it's called My Totem Is Bushfire, and it discusses the late Wick elder Gladys, who was one of the clan leaders, uh, in Western Cape York Peninsula, who tested the limits of native title in the High Court. Amazing. Yes. So we'll share that with you now. <coughs> Hello, Daniel Browning with you for Away Indigenous Culture on RN. Because of her, we can do just about anything, I reckon. Our mums, our nanas, our aunties, our sisters. Today we pay tribute to the leadership of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Yesterday, today and tomorrow. 
when you commit yourself to your community, when you live in two worlds, in different societies, Aboriginal society with your language practices every day in life, then to adopt European society, it's hard. You are like in both worlds. Someone pulls you from the other end. It's like a rope with a tug of war. You want to win. The late Gladys Tyburn Goomba was just one of several Wick elders, many of them women, to take their fight all the way from Aracoon on Western Cape York Peninsula to the High Court in Canberra. They didn't sort of storm in and smash down glass windows and take down the walls. They just quietly walked in and they presented themselves in such a way and, you know, did it their way. And I thought there's something to learn about leadership and the way they sort of held themselves in, in, in that sort of world because it was a challenge where they could probably quite easily just sort of throw their fists up in the air and jump up and down. But they chose to, to be compassionate and they chose to listen and they, and they hoped they would have got that back. But as it played out, they really didn't. A new documentary by filmmaker Dean Gibson retells the epic story of Wick versus Queensland. Ilbidgeri's artistic director Rachel Mazza joins us to tell us about the project to bring the stories of Aboriginal women from Victoria throughout history and now to the stage. History remembers the men and most, more often than not, leaves the women out. And in our Because of Her series, rapper Ziggy Ramo and the fellow artist who's influenced him and become part of his support network. She's like the first person to stand up for marginalised people. And I, I would not even hold it against her if she just became so jaded. And yeah, the fact that she's just such a wonderful person despite all of that. Plum with her track Monsters. This is Away on RN, Daniel Browning with you. Two days before Christmas in 1996, when the High Court handed down its WIC decision, an elder from Aracoon on Western Cape York did something unforgettable. And I don't know if it was, but it seemed very spontaneous. It was a powerful and for me unforgettable image of a traditional woman colonising that cold, empty, forbidding place, the High Court in Canberra. And she danced there in the forecourt. She called it shake a leg. In a majority decision, the High Court ruled that pastoral leases did not extinguish native title and that the two, pastoral leases and native title, could coexist. Now, the Wick case tested the limits of Paul Keating's native title legislation in a way that Mabo couldn't. And that was because of the competing interests on land covered by vast pastoral stations across the Western Cape. But the umpire's decision in the Wick case was not allowed to stand. It was a dramatic time in our nation's history. And now a documentary by filmmaker Dean Gibson goes back to find out what happened 
and what it means now and why we shouldn't forget. For the Wick and Thayori peoples of North Queensland, the decision is a victory, an answer finally to the land claim they first lodged in 1993. The significance of the Wick case, other than legally, is that it established that the sophisticated rights of Aboriginal people, rights of property, rights to have their law recognised, and matters of that kind, were true and, and real. The High Court has decided by majority today that it is possible for native title rights to coexist with the rights of pastoralists. Can you comment on what you think this might mean for Indigenous reconciliation? Uh, perhaps that's a question for Gladys. I'll answer that for you, sir. Whatever your name is, but I'm Gladys anyway. I'm the hot woman. I'm the fire. The bushfire is my totem, all right? And I'm a proud woman today of Cape York. It is, to me, an historic moment as a weak woman. I am not afraid of anything. The decision of the High Court is to the effect that it is possible for Aboriginal native title rights to coexist with the rights of pastoralists, with no detriment to the pastoralists' concern. And out of here we go, no one being a loser but me going home, like I said last night in the news, that is the Christmas present I'll take to the weak people. Thank you all. <laughs> my name is Dean Gibson. I'm a filmmaker based here in Brisbane, Aboriginal filmmaker. Uh, my family is uh, from far north Queensland in a little community known as Hopevale and uh, family down here in Brisbane and uh, a proud father and a proud husband and of a young little family myself. The conception of Wick versus Queensland goes goes back several years now, and um, I guess what's what's magnificent about this film is the undertaking of of archives that has occurred across over almost twenty years of filming across the Cape. It goes back to my relationship and friendship with Noel Pearson. He's up in uh, Hopevale. He's another Hopevale fellow, and and Noel and I have sort of crossed paths over years. And and I, I knew that he had this cameraman follow him around for many years, and I. I always said to him, no, when the time's right, let's have a look at all this archive because it's some fantastic stuff from up in Cape York Peninsula that probably hasn't seen the light of day. And unfortunately, his, his cameraman who, who'd captured all this vision had passed away. And, and I sort of, again, saw Noel and said, again, let's, let's look at this stuff when you're ready, only when you're ready. And a call that came from NITV looking for significant films that could talk to significant moments of history in Australian modern and, I guess, Aboriginal history moments uh, in time. And uh, I just, we got talking and we we went to a couple of workshops and came to the point where I said, I reckon there's something in the the Wick case. Um, It's such a landmark case in Australian history, but it hasn't really been undertaken in a, a real documentary feature perspective and I and that's sort of how it came and it sort of slowly progressed it was a, one of these slow growing ideas and concepts that we sort of had to take time to sort of because it's such a big story and it's such a big history from up on the Cape York it was about finding that key moment that really defined a lot of what means to the Cape York today and a lot of the issues that still exist today and I, and I think we sort of realized that we all knew what Marbo for this country and the significance of, of Mabo, but what an opportunity to bring it to the mainland and tell that story 
from Western Cape York Peninsula. It is a big story. And what I often think with, you know, in our history, even in our recent political history as Aboriginal people, the, the risk is, and I said this to, to Alexis Wright when talking about her book, mm. uh, Tracker, mm. that if we don't write it down and if we don't remember it, it we, there is no chance it will be remembered in the future. So we were just listening to a podcast called Away and that was about native title and about a woman Gladys and her role in that. Pretty fascinating stuff. Hopefully we get to hear the second half later in the program or at another stage. It's really good to learn a bit more of the specifics around these fights with native title going back to yeah the, this case in the 90s. Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018, celebrating live music in Yarra, featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queer in the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase Girls to the Front at the Laundry, and much, much more. Ten days in July, with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. I love that ad. I always dance. Mm. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren, George and myself, Ayan. You're Anya. <laughs> Oh my god! Ayan is at work. Uh, I was just testing your intentions. <laughs> that was completely. Um, completely planned. Yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> up next we have Robin Oxley, um, who's incredible, and I saw her at the Feminism in the Pub because of her weekend event organised by Union Women. Robin is a Tharawal woman from the southwest Sydney area of New South Wales. Um, Robin is an assistant lecturer in the Faculty of Arts for the School of Social Sciences and Criminology and has a strong interest in the Indigenous experience within all aspects of the criminal justice system. Thank you for joining us today, Robin. No worries. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your current research? Sure. So when we are have Aboriginal affairs within the criminal justice system, it seems to be taken as tokenistic and just ticking boxes and and what have you. So I'm developing a new theory on peace building that includes law enforcement as well within that theory um, and it will address the issues of post-relief support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners. Mm -hmm. It will also address problems of intergenerational trauma Mm. Um, we can break down those social constructs of Aboriginality and inclusiveness at, in, inclusiveness at a government level. So tokenism is in general and also in consultation. Mm. So through aspects of peace building, which include uh, truth and reconciliation, memorialisation, reparation, institutional reform, so since the initial contact uh, between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, um, the relationship's always been based on this kind of form of control and intervention and forced assimilation and when I talk about forced assimilation it's actually just to an extent really mm. um, we're only assimilated to the extent that the government sees fit um, mm. so which all points to the law enforcement side of this theory um, so even since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal 
desk in custody, we see the political rhetoric around inclusivity and consultation and the, and the ticking boxes mm. um, regarding the Howard government, the Rudd, Rudd government, Abbott, and currently even the Turnbull government. I mean, the, um, the apology that Kevin Rudd did in 2008, mm. although it had, the, had good sides to it, it also had conditions which, you know, ensured that compensation and um, reparation would not be included and, and you know, he, he said in a uh, newspaper article in 2008 uh, before the apology that, you know, we will not under any circumstances be establishing any compensation arrangements or any compensation funds. Mm. Absolutely blunt on that. So that tells me that the apology was partly an empty gesture, mm. that it just ticked the box and it keeps us blacks happy for a little while. And so my new theory should see reparations included in the peace building and law enforcement. Mm, that's that's really interesting. Um that, that bit about tokenism and, and simply ticking the boxes. Um, do you think, I mean, the government with the, with the treaty and the Uluru Statement and all that, um, do you think that they are sort of finally starting to get it at all, um, but not also just the government organisations but other well-meaning organisations, or do you think they're still stuck in the, in the same sort of rhetoric and you know, ticking the boxes thing that they've always done? Yeah, look, I mean, there are some programs out there that are fantastic and they're trying their best to have Aboriginal voices heard. Like uh, in New South Wales, we've got a Clean Slate Without Prejudice program and that sees Aboriginal male offenders leave prison mm. once a week to visit a community group like a PCYC in Redfern, in Sydney, um, mm. and they actually work with the Aboriginal community and this ensures that they have those community connections. So when they're released, they've got a higher chance of staying out of prison system, mm. having access to appropriate... Like they've got um, services, they've got a sense of purpose, and it also ensures the community uh, are active in their right to self-determination. So in Victoria, we've got the Torch Project, which is a really good program, and it allows offenders to practice artwork and sell their artwork. However, the knowledge and culture is lost. Like they're in prison painting, Mm. but that knowledge is not getting passed down to the future generations. So it becomes this generational knowledge of culture loss. Mm. And I guess, you know, once we move to the Uluru Statement from the heart, which is the nation's most important statement as we've moved into the 21st century, Mm. I mean, the mere fact that the government refuses to include an Aboriginal voice elected into Parliament displays the continued control of Aboriginal people's Mm. lives by the government. But this is because, you know, the government only includes and consults Aboriginal people and community at the end of the process. Mm. So once the, the damage has been done... They label it as a time where Aboriginal people can practice their self-determination minus the funding, mm. minus the resource mm. and minus the freedom to actually take matters into our own hands. Mm. So there are always these little disclosures on inclusion. But basically, we've still got a hell of a long way to go yeah. in removing the boxes and tokenistic gestures yeah. so that we do have a voice in Parliament, we have a truth-telling commission and we see some institutional reform within the criminal justice system. Mm. And what should such institutional reform in the criminal justice space, but also in other policy initiatives generally, um, what would they look like? Yeah, uh, so I guess initially it would be the inclusion of Aboriginal people within the criminal justice system, but mm. not as a tokenistic tick of the box. Um, mm. And process, not asking for their opinion when it's too late. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So mm. actually including Aboriginal communities, the commencement of talks and the initial process of policy mm. and laws making in, in, in states and federal and territory governments. Mm. So in, in Victoria, the only state 
and ter- or territory to successfully pass the treaty legislation mm-hmm. due to the hard work of the Victorian and wider Aboriginal communities. But this has paved the way for what institutional reform would look like. So mm-hmm. It's not about blaming white people for the past or mon- monetary compensation. It's all about ensuring the prevention of further marginalisation mm-hmm. of Aboriginal people in our own country. Yeah. And I will add that Mm-hmm. We're demanding we have legislation in a place that will see the criminal justice system approach policies and lawmaking mm-hmm. in a holistic and inclusive process. So yeah. once this is achieved, we'll be able to look at reparations through memorialisations that promote Aboriginal knowledge mm-hmm. and places in Australia, like the Jabberwung Tree, and the Victoria, mm-hmm. which the Victorian government are attempting to remove. It's an, it's an act of cultural terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting, Robert. Sorry, hi, I'm Lauren, another Tuesday Breakfast broadcaster here. Um, in the context of this, because of her, we can, um, you know, this, I guess, outward-looking sort of representative celebration here of, of Aboriginal women. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I don't want to say it's performative because this is not my, my area to speak on, but we're seeing this simultaneous celebration publicly of Aboriginal women and then things like the Japurung tree destruction, um, you know, which obviously the Daniel Andrews government thought that they could sort of get away with on the side. What are your thoughts on these um, these sorts of... Oh, what's the word I'm like looking for? Yeah, mass conflicting. And, and yeah. the fact that Aboriginal women are killed at rates that, you know, that, um, that white women are not and all of these sorts of things. What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. So we've got a long way to go to close the gap, and, and I'm not talking about um, just within the criminal justice system. It's also about education and health and housing. Mm-hmm. So we've got the, because of the her, um, because of her, we can Madoc Celebration Week um, theme. It's a really good opportunity, and it's been amazing so far this year. Um, they've been able to promote access and services that are available to Aboriginal women and families through this theme. So it's actually worked not just as a celebration of women and and this whole um, initial picture of what a mother is and what a sister does and what an auntie does, but actually has promoted a whole heap of services that are now available, Mm. or always been available, sorry, to Aboriginal women and their families so they can access them. And and promoting that and actually um, having knowledge on that is is key. Mm. So that'll be one part of closing the gap between this family, not even just family violence, but just health services and education services and housing services that are available. Um, and just to wrap up, Robin, um, this this week's NADOC theme, Because of Her We Can, um, do you want to maybe share what that means to you? Sure. So I guess for me, this is, uh, I mean, I love Victoria. They know how to put on a party uh, when it comes <laughs> to NADOC. Um, but it's about mourning as well, mourning the history mm. and telling the story. Um, that's the only way we're going to kind of overcome this intergenerational trauma is if we actually share stories and this truth-telling commission that I was mentioned before. Um, and I think this week and last week and mm-hmm. probably next week as well is, is the perfect opportunity to do this. So get amongst it, um, go and enjoy, celebrate all things that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, especially the women that we've got so many strong women in our community that, mm. that just push you to to the limits which is just incredible um to have that support so yeah and hopefully the goal is to do this 52 weeks of the year (laughs) absolutely that is my plan (laughs) beautiful thank you so much for joining us today robin no worries thanks for having me
Walking for Country Film Fundraiser, Tuesday 10th of July, 6 to 8pm at Loop Cinema and Bar, 23 Myers Place, Nam, Melbourne. I feel strong about this area so I can feel all my ancestors around me. Look at the trees, look at the beautiful plants, all these little things, all the little small the animals to the big animals. Hear directly from Auntie Vicky Abdullah, Yaliri traditional owner, who'll be speaking at this special documentary film screening. Mining on, on our land makes a big mess to our Mother Earth. All funds raised go to the campaign to protect Yaliri. To book, go to melbournefoe.org.au forward slash walk film fundraiser concession 10 Wage 15, Solidarity 20, First Nations free and no one turned away. We say no to uranium. Want uranium? Leave it in the ground. Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That was um, Dreaming Now with the song Australia Does Not Exist. Um, Every time I hear that song, I think of um, Invasion Day earlier this year when Tarnine said that she wanted to burn it down and all of that, Mm. you know, ruckus erupted because people don't understand the concept of a metaphor. And um, I always think, I wonder if, you know, Andrew Bolt got hold of that song. Anyway... (laughs) Um, we're joined on the line now by Isabel Morphy Walsh, who is the Senior Query Programs Officer at Museums Victoria. Um, <coughs> oh, and she joins us in this NADOC week to talk about what is happening at museums. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. How Thank are you? you? I'm good. How are you going? Yeah, good. good. It's pretty exciting. We're in the second week of NADOC now for most of us Victorians, so I'm having a fine old time. Yeah, it's feeling... Um, it's great vibes in, in Melbourne this time of year, I reckon. Yeah, always I can feel the love yeah. floating around. <laughs> good, that's good. Um, so let's talk about what's happening down at the museum. So you've been instrumental in bringing together all of the NADOC Week programming. What um, What's in store? What can we expect? Oh, well, we've been doing so much at the museums. I mean, at the museums, all three of them. Um, and, for example, last week we got... Uh, we got kick-started with Nocturnal. We had a great celebration of um, Aboriginal um, Mm. musicians. We had uh, flag raisings at all of our sites. We had a a beautiful exhibition which has come down to visit Immigration Museum called Barangaroo Nyanyami. Um, And it's it's from a group of artists in Sydney who have come down and uh, have, have created some wonderful sort of cultural objects and then and shared their knowledge with the kids. I believe there's still um, dance workshops going on for that. Mm. And then we've just got stuff happening all week this week as well. We've got um, tours of Malari. We've got um, uh, canoe, bark canoe making um, over at Melbourne Museum. And then very, very, uh, I'm very excited for tomorrow night. We've got an event called the Intersection of Art and Historical Collections. Our senior curator of uh, Southeast Australia, um, the Aboriginal collection, she's going to 
pull out some key artworks by um, Victorian Aboriginal women and examine the contribution that um, Victorian Aboriginal women have made to our beautiful collection. So I'm really excited to hear from her as well. Mm, That sounds incredible. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. I mean, we're spoiled in this beautiful city of ours for um, wonderful Aboriginal makers and creators and thinkers. Mm. Yeah, and Nocturnal was awesome. Um, George, who's one of the broadcasters here as well, we went down on Friday night and had a great night. It was a lot of fun, and the um, the exhibition in the museum itself was beautiful. Oh, yes, we've got this new exhibition. It's going to be running for um, just under six months, I believe. It's called Because of Her We Can. It's our beautiful curator, um, Stacey Piper. She decided to align this current exhibition with the NADOC, National NADOC theme this year. And, I mean, it was so hard for her to choose the just mm-hmm. just nine um, uh, historical Aboriginal women to focus in on, you know. And she, she's um, chosen some amazing women to highlight. You know, Lady Gladys Nichols, who um, was very, very involved in the 1967 referendum um, you know, Elizabeth Maud Morgan Hoffman, who was one of the first Aboriginal women to set up in a numerous organisations. She founded the Order Order Tribal Council, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. So, I don't know, I, can't, I, I just can't express how much joy it gives me to celebrate all of these beautiful mm. women that have come from my uh, my people. Yeah, it's um, and we were just saying earlier in the program, it's a very emotional um just, and I think the, the big photos of these women and their little life histories, but then also the massive impact, you know, because there's, there's only such a short space, but the amount of incredible things that are packed into these couple of lines next to these women's photos is, um, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. And it's, it's nice to hear that it's on for six months because I sort of want to take everybody I know. Um, <laughs> and um, Oh, that's really great. We'll read it. Yeah, it's, um, it's very, very, very cool. Um, and so... On that theme, the Because of Her We Can theme, obviously you've, um, you're really enjoying it, which is cool. Um, but can you, would you feel comfortable telling us a bit about what it means to you as a, as a woman in, in Victoria? For sure. I mean, I think especially now, um, the way the, the zeitgeist is in society, you know, it's so important to celebrate and empower um, women, I believe. And, um, uh, you know, for me, being a, a, a Aboriginal woman, it is so, uh, you know, important to hear about, you know, significant Aboriginal women. And I think about the fact that really, you know, I, I'm, I'm here because I stand on the shoulders of giants because of, of all of those who have come before me um, and all of those who assist me in my life now. And a lot of that is women, you know, it's women bringing up other women and I mean, certainly in my work environment as well, there's um, th- there's just strong Aboriginal staunch women who are paving the way and putting their hand out and bringing up other Aboriginal women. So it's it's um it's pretty special. And then and then I think about personally who are the who the women are that have affected me. And you know, I'm I'm so grateful for who I am for my for my mother and my aunties and um you know all of my all of those really significant women who are in my life on a daily basis mm. yeah there's something so special about um communities of women um just i i think it gives you something that that you just can't get anywhere else um that's really beautiful i totally agree it's really it's really hard to describe though isn't it mm. that that sort of 
solidarity and camaraderie you can have sometimes. And I yeah. think it's also what I've really loved about um, uh, celebrating uh, Aboriginal women this year is how it's really brought together um, the whole community. And they're able to, you know, there's every single person in the world can tell you a story about a woman who's touched them, who's, who's um, you know, made them who they are. And it's so exciting to watch all of the community, our men, our kids, our, you know, our girls and our women, all celebrating these big figures. Mm, yeah. Oh, Isabel, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And um, for anybody who is interested, as I really think you should be, in all of these incredible programs, if you go to museumsvictoria.com.au, all of the programs are there. I'm pretty sure they're on the front page, and it's super accessible and easy to, to find your way around that website. So I encourage everybody to go. And, um, and thank you for all your work on it. It's really beautiful. Oh, thanks. We look forward to seeing everyone. <laughs> Have a great rest of the NADOC week. You too. Bye. So that was Isabel. you got to remember NADOC's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NADOC week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NADOC means a lot to me, it's um, about identity and also about past and present. NADOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NADOC! And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. So you're listening to Tuesday Brekkie, and we're going to jump into now uh, another little audio this one is from SBS NITV Radio and it's about Aboriginal water rights. Online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Too long. Uh, First Nations people were involved in water planning in this country, you know, and um, um, yeah, um, successive governments were handing out water licences um, to, to irrigators and, and to developers right throughout the Murray-Darling Basin and, um, you know, there was a, a group of people in the southern basin who, um, you know, felt that there, there needs to be um, a greater uh, First Nations voice in water planning and water management in this country. And in 19, uh, I think it was 2007, they got together on the Murray River and um, had a meeting and, and um, you know, worked on what we call the Echuca Declaration um, you know, and there was a lot of old old people that that have passed now that were instrumental in in the the writing of the um, the declaration and um, you know really sort of getting out there and um, you know pushing for for this as well. I think it was Will Mooney that told me who who's from um, Mildred told me that Aboriginal people only own zero point one percent of water. 
through the Murray-Darling well, Basin, which which is yeah. an indication that people haven't had access to management of water or, in, you know, economic rights, um, cultural and economic rights to water. Mm. Um, what will this research mean now? What's what's going to change? Well, the, the research have, have three aspects to the research. One is we've got a guide for the nations. So the nations now can, can look at... Um, their nation and they could look at what water requirements they require for their nations and for their different, for their sites and that as well. You know, there was, um, there's something like about 13,000 gigalitres of water in the system. The majority of that goes to, to irrigation, um, and the majority of it goes to, to, to mainly cotton cropping and, and stuff like that. But this research gives us a tool now for those nations to to um, set a structure in place to identify what their their water needs are and look at real science around uh, their you know the water needs of their nations based on their values and their uses and and objectives and outcomes as well and it gives them a, a um, you know and it also gives a tool to government to look at um, maybe changing legislation in terms of of real water rights for, for First Nations people in this country. And it's about spirit and spirituality for people, isn't it? Like when you, you talk about the hard line of economics, when we look at the history of the way the water has been commercialised, um, it, when I always ask people about cultural flow now and, and what the, their riverway or what their ocean way means to them, and it all comes down to the, the true spirituality and the, the essence of water. And um, now it's something that will actually be considered, you know, yeah. in a sense, which mm. hasn't been seen. When we look at places like Wilcannia, where areas of water have been, um, you know, it's been desecrated. I mean, mm. Fred, I think something it's good if you could explain to people is about just because there's a state line doesn't mean that's that's the end of the flow, is it? Is it? No. You know, for Aboriginal people, water is water. And And... and you know, it's the it's the colonisers who've who've placed um, names on that water. You know, environmental water, irrigation water, um, water for, for for domestic use. You know, critical uh, use water. We never had a, a a label on the water. The water came down the system, um, and as an old Murray um, gentleman who's passed on now, you know, said, you know, um, our management plan of water was was simply don't be greedy, you know, take what you need and, and let, let the water flow to the nation down below you. And I think that, you know, that that management plan of the river system has gone away now, you know, and um, it, it, it's what we put, the value that we put on the the, the plants and the animals and the, the landscape that that relies on that water to flow across it, to, to regenerate uh, Mother Earth and to regenerate, you know, the landscape that we live in and, 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 and for us to be a part of that landscape, you know, not separated out from the landscape like capitalism and Western democracy does. It separates you away from, um, you know, from, from your culture. It separates you away from your, your, your spiritual connection to, to the land and to the waters. So, you know, for us, we're forced into a situation, I think, where we have to label the water and label it as a cultural flow, um, you know. And by all means, you know, for 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 non non First Nations people, 
you know, um, the crown under their law owns all the water and, and not the people. So the irrigators and, and, and the other water users only get a license of the crown uh, to access that water and to use that water for a purpose. For us, there was an unwritten law. There was a law, um, you know, that you had to let that water go down the system. So there was a there was a watermark where, you know, you couldn't couldn't take any water if it was at that 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 watermark. And um, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years people um, pumping water out of the rivers at, at what they call a low flow, and and um, you know, virtually stealing the water. So. Um, yeah, for us, a cultural flow is is more than than just you know we have to integrate um, a whole heap of things in, into um, you know modern society. And cultural flows also looks at economic um, economic development for our mob as well. So it's water, just not specifically for culture. We can buy water for um, an economic pers- uh, purpose, so that. You know, um, somebody or, or, or a nation can can look at economic development, or we can just let it flow down the system. It's water that we legally own, um, and we believe that it's water, you know, uh, that comes through our inherent rights um, as the First Nations um, and the First Peoples of this country. NITV Radio on radio, online, and mobile. So areas um, have high cultural value. I've been reading uh, like red gum forests, wetlands, billabongs, floodplains, and that's just inland. So we haven't even we're not even t- talking about um, also areas around coastlines. So there's a high cultural value. And um, can you just talk a bit about why that would be? What you know the ancestral ties to those areas. Um, that's where the history lies, isn't it? Yeah, you know I, I can talk about one of the one of the actual sites that were was a part of the cultural flows research and one of the trial sites which is Gurman Swamp and it's on the Kalgar River up in northwest New South Wales and it's just to give somebody, you know, people that um, aren't aware of it, but we're actually eighty five kilometres, around about eighty five kilometres south of the biggest cotton property in Australia, Cubby Station. Um, and the the site that was selected um, by the research committee as the northern northern trial site, um, Gurman Swamp it, it lies just off the Kalgara River, and um, um, Gorman Swamp is special to us because of the red river gums that, that grow on that swamp. And, and for the Murawari people, the red river gum is, is one of our most um, sacred trees. It, it, it's, it's a spiritual tree for us because when our old people pass on and they go to the sky camp, you know, we we communicate to those old people um, and, and those spirits and those ancestors in the sky camp through the leaves of the Red River Gum and they answer back to us as well. Now, you know, a River Red Gum needs watering probably once every three to five years um, and we, we, were, we, were, we, we knew that, um, you know, a flood had to go in, uh, come down the river system on average three to five years. What the research had done now, um, just quickly, is it looked at um, the flow of the, the, the water down the Kalkar River, and it's blown out now to probably one in every, you know, uh, 14 to 15 years. So um, the development up, uh, upstream has severely impacted on our value of that swamp and the river, river red gums that are in that swamp, that swamp as well. Um, 
and you know, on average, sort of with no development, um, the inundation of that swamp would be 89 times, um, you know, out of 100 years. So for 89 years um, out of 100, it would be inundated. Currently, it's 29 times out of 100 years. So this is the hydrology that that we looked at and and the research that we looked at as a part of the the Cultural Flows uh, Research Project, and it clearly shows that development is impacting on our our, um, our cultural values and, and our way of life as well. Wow. So you're listening to Tuesday Brekkie at 3CR. We were just listening to a little bit of an audio... Sorry, some technical issues. <laughs> uh, we were just listening to a little bit of audio about Aboriginal water rights. It's from NITV Radio, so you can listen to the rest of that online if you're interested. You've got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! And we're back at Tuesday Brecky. So that was an ad for Beyond the Bars, which is currently being broadcast, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, every day during NADOC Week, um, or National NADOC Week, 3CR is doing live um, prison broadcasts. Yes, so today is 11 to 2pm at the Barwon Prison in Lara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so that's every day between oh, 12 and 4, it looks like, between mm-hmm. 12 and 4 and Friday between 11 and 2 as well. Um, and that's prisons all around um, all around the state, Sale, yeah. Castlemaine, Lavishan and Lara. And so much work goes into these yeah. broadcasts, it's really quite fantastic. I think it's really to. important. I sort of hadn't realised before I started at 3CR, um, I guess firstly how much those voices are missing from society's media, I guess, that we create, but also um, just how how kind of revolutionary it is to take a radio, in, uh, radio, a mic in there. And Anyway. Yeah. So what are we listening to now, my dear? So this is a little audio that I found from BTN um, uh, TV and news, like a current affairs show for kids. Behind um, the news, if yeah, you're a high vintage news, and you yeah. love ABC Kids. <laughs> um, and so school kids uh, had an opportunity to share um, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman that has inspired them. Mm. So let's hear it. I'm Sunny, and the woman who inspires me is Rosalie Kuhn of the Monks. But Mina says they hunt the crocodiles. She was born in 1937 in Jerry country in the Northern Territory. It's time for your music practice. She is probably best known for being the first Indigenous woman to have a lead role in a film. After the film's success, Rosalie devoted her life to Indigenous issues. 
She has worked with the Department for Aboriginal Affairs, ran Aboriginal Hostel Legal Aid and is a member of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. I chose Rosalie because she inspires me to follow my dreams. Hey, I'm Richard and the woman who I'm inspired by is Fanny Crockin-Smith. Fanny was a Palawa woman, born in 1834, two years after the Black War had ended, which had killed hundreds of Indigenous people. Between 1899 and 1903, she recorded songs on a wax cylinder in Tasmanian Indigenous language. These recordings are really important because many believe she is the last fluent speaker of Tasmanian's original Indigenous language. Fanny inspires me because without her there would be no evidence of any indigenous Tasmanian language. Hi, my name is Josh and the woman who inspires me is Gladys Elphick. She was born in Adelaide in 1904. She was a Ghana and another Jerry woman. In 1965 she helped form the Aboriginal Women's Council. The council carried out a great deal of work for the Aboriginal community including campaigning for the Yes vote in the 1967 referendum. It changed Australia's constitution so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were counted as citizens. Gladys inspires me because she worked so hard for the Aboriginal rights. Hi, I am Fraser and the person I have chosen is Trukunini. Trukunini was a famous Tasmanian Aboriginal woman Trukunini was born in 1812 when Palau people were at war with European settlers. To keep their people safe, Trukunini and her father convinced other Palau people to move to the settlement on Flinders Island. They were promised blankets, food, houses, and their custom would be respected. But instead, the island became a prison and many became sick and died. Trignini and 45 other people were moved to another settlement on the mainland where conditions were even worse. Some say this made her strong again because she was the last of the group to survive. Trignini inspires me to be strong and resilient. Hi, I'm Shanti. The person I look up to is Neighbor Paris, who was born in Darwin in 1971. She identifies with the Kaigi people of the East Kimberley, Yarra people of the West Kimberley, and Maori people of the West Island land. When Nova was 18, she went to Perth, determined to become a champion hockey player. And after several years of training really hard, she made it into the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta with the Aussie women's hockey team, the Hockey Roos, where she became the first Indigenous Australian to win a gold medal. The 25-year-old became the first Aborigine and Northern Territorian to win an Olympic gold medal as a member of the Australian women's hockey team at Atlanta. But in 2013, Nova made a massive career change. Julia Gillard who was Australia's Prime Minister at the time, invited her to join the Labour Party. Nova Paris inspires me to be an athlete like her. These are just a few of the women who changed Australia and made it better. And because of them, we can grow to be whoever we want to be. And hopefully inspire kids for the future. Happy Labour Week!
That was awesome. <laughs> oh, and okay, people who were listening to that, you couldn't see the visuals, but I'm going to put the link on our Facebook page because it was just so, um, so beautiful. The kids, yeah. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting clucky, George. <laughs> and it's just, it just goes to show how many amazing things are being done mm. for NADOC Week. Like, all you have to do is look online and it's just everywhere. Mm. And chat to people about what it means to them and, yeah. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> All right, so I've got a couple of community announcements. The Students of Sustainability Conference is on at the moment. It's an annual environmental and social justice conference. It's been running for 28 years. It brings together students, First Nations elders, activists, academics, environment, environmentalists, artists, and anyone who is passionate about improving the state of this world from all over the country. So it's an awesome, awesome opportunity to learn, connect, build relationships, and have fun. Not sure if you can still get tickets, but it's, yeah, it's currently underway, so it could be good to check out. Um, on the 7th of July is the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, um, and they're promoting an upcoming counter-protest against far-right, far-right figures Stephen Molyneux and Lauren Southern. Mm. So we were going to talk about that today. We might discuss that next week because that's a whole topic. Mm. If that talk is going ahead, it would be really good to keep an eye out for when that is and how yeah. to go and... And have a big presence. Yes, definitely. Mm. Um, on the 15th of July at 2pm is a rally for the ABC at the Melbourne Town Hall. So this is an opportunity to protest against the ABC funding cuts, continual political interference against the public broadcaster and any suggestion of selling off or privatising the ABC. So an important event mm -hmm. to check out that one. Um, on the 25th of July at 6pm is an Indigenous Youth Incarceration and Education Film Night. Mm. It's being organised by Message, which is the uh, that organisation for school and education. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be at RMIT. And a couple more to go. On the 8th of August at 6pm is the Indigenous Youth Incarceration and Education Panel Discussion. Mm. Sounds interesting. And lastly... Writer, speaker and appearance activist Carly Finlay is hosting Access to Fashion, a fashion show and discussion about disability representation in fashion. Despite the fact that nearly 20% of Australians are disabled, they are rarely represented in the media and in marketing and are often unseen beyond the medical setting. Mm. The event will focus on the need for accessibility and authentic representation, highlighting change makers and activists within the dis disabled community. It will be held in September, and Carly is looking for donations to put towards the event, which will help pay everybody involved. And she's also looking for people to donate items or time. The, crowd, the crowdfunding target is five grand, so if you're able to assist, you can go to www.gofundme.com forward slash access to fashion. But also we did post the link up on our Tuesday breakfast page mm -hmm. as well. Um, and if you would like to volunteer your time, you can email carlyfinley8, the number 8, at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. And we're going to wrap it up with a song? Yes. Oh. I want to play a track. This is my favourite song at the moment. <laughs> um, it is by Estee Blue, um, who just has the most incredible voice. I've been listening to it on repeat all weekend. Um, and the track is called All. I wanted you.
That was beautiful, Georgie. <laughs> so good. Este Blue. Este Tracks blue. called All. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Up next is Accent of Women, and Giselle will be examining the anti-immigration policies in Germany and the rise of fascism. Sounds great. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.